Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability in the built environment. Hope you're all good out there. I think we're suffering from tiredness and post-holiday hangover. So this week with Sam Bamba from Indy Nature. They're a, a natural fibre insulation manufacturer. Introduced to us by friend of the show, Duncan Smith, who said you need to talk to these lads. So I had a chat in the summer. I think it's quite a timely episode, following on from John Butler's powerhouse performance last week. In terms of discussing the viability of natural fibre insulation and biogenic products as a form of carbon store, specifically in the way John talks about it in terms of buffering rather than long-term locked-away store like people have perhaps tried to get away with in the past. Now, apologies, there are aspects of this episode which, listening back in the edit, it wasn't intended to sound like an advertorial, and it sort of does a little, but I think this is because it's a product and an approach that we're all very enthusiastic about. I mean, from an abstract level around its thermal performance, the carbon buffering potential, and to a practical level in terms of something like health and safety and handling. We go into all of that. So um won't keep you anymore. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Peter. How's it going? Nice to to put a face to uh, to a name. How are you? <laughs> I'm not bad, thank you. Sorry I'm so yes. late. So I would assume, Jeff, that you haven't read the the show notes that are circulated. Not in the slices, um, no. <laughs> I've been away. I've been, I was. I've been in sw- swimming pools and woodlands. You know, yeah, Jeff, you're the expert anyway. You don't need to read the notes. You are the notes. It was months ago that I first circulated them. I mean, I'm toiling to find them now. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the product, the impact-driven nature of it. We can talk about performance. That it is a high-performance product. I'm really interested in hearing about that whole process, like getting something to market. All right, so we're with Sam Baumber of Indie Nature. Yeah, welcome, Sam. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been quite a long time in the making, I think, hasn't it? Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Thanks for having us <laughs> on. Yes, it feels like we've been uh, working on this for, well, it feels like forever, but it's been a, a heck of a ride for the last seven years uh, since we founded Indie Nature. And my co-founder, Scott Simpson, was at, uh, at CAT, the Centre for Alternative Technology, in 2012. So over a decade for, for him working on it as well. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's been a been a good journey so far. Though. All right. So you, so we were first made, or sorry, no, I was first made aware of you. I can't speak for Jeff. By Duncan saying, uh, Dan, you need to talk to Sam because I think you've been working with those guys at River Clyde Homes. And yeah. he said it was a really interesting product that you guys, well, that you have. Do you want to give us a bit of background on what indie nature is, like the whole industrial nature, the concepts, and, and what it is that you put together? Yeah, so indie, indie nature is 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 short for in, industrial nature, which really is the vision for what we want to see in the world to tackle climate change and to make sure we've got materials across a range of industries that are just more sustainable for this planet and the people living on it. So. Um, uh, Indie Nature was a uh, started seven years ago um, to well no sorry I've come to the end of a very long day no <laughs> that's all right Jeff you're on silent yes I'm a professional don't worry we don't bite I mean I will interrogate the hell out of you and and um, and we'll you know brutalize you and and yeah and... <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm good it's just been a long old day and I'm looking forward to talk to you that's all so Indie Nature really came about to tackle the climate crisis and focus initially on construction materials and and the fabric of the buildings that we're building things with industrial nature really is is for us what's what's needed um, in terms of nature-based solutions to climate change net zero but also the sustainability qualities that natural fibers have got if you're if you can manufacture them and use them in the right way we can have materials in this world that make for healthier people healthier buildings and a healthier planet. So what we recognized, my co-founder Scott and I about seven years ago, was that the manufacturing facilities didn't exist for the net zero future this planet needs. So that was the real gap. We needed to make sure we were re-establishing manufacturing with the right capabilities to make the materials for bio-based solutions, net zero solutions, be processable, sustainable solutions, 
And that didn't exist. So we set about creating a company, industrial nature, Hindi nature, to solve that and to really take those bold steps to, to bring the, the people, the places and, and the money together to establish manufacturing facilities to, to make that kind of material happen. And so that was seven years ago when we founded Indie Nature. Um, Scott had been working on it for a long time before that. And uh, since then, we've, we've managed to really go through the journey of that of a startup uh, manufacturing and innovation company based in, in, in Scotland. Our, our HQ for many years was in Edinburgh. And in about a year ago, we managed to establish our first manufacturing facility, the Indian Nature Mill in the Scottish borders, just on a hill uh, over the town of, of Jedburgh, drawing on the manufacturing heritage of the Scottish borders, the textiles heritage of the Scottish borders, and also uh, in, a, in a perfect location to develop the, the bio-based supply chain with, with local farmers. So it's been an exciting journey. Uh, and really that first, that first journey is, in, is in, in taking something from a concept, bringing the, the support and the backing of, of, of investors to help get something like this set up. And then, um, then once you've got the money, you've actually got to do it. So uh, <laughs> that's what we've been doing. Um, yeah. So you, it's biogenic products. So what's your raw material? It's a hemp-based product, isn't it? Well, yes. Industrial hemp is is an absolute wonder crop. And so we use industrial hemp as one of our key ingredients, but we're not limited to that. We, we can work with any natural fiber. And so we, we, we're doing all sorts of R&D with a range of different things. But industrial hemp is is the key. And at the minute, industrial hemp across the world is, is um, in different countries, farmed in, in huge quantities. And it's, it's very different to its more potent cousins that, that get used for nutri- nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals, uh, or, for, or in foodstuffs. Industrial hemp, you wouldn't want to smoke it <laughs> for a start, but it is, it's an incredibly durable fiber and a great crop for a range of different purposes. And it's one of the best carbon sequestration crops out there per hectare. It's, it's, it's soaking up between eight and 20 uh, tons of carbon per hectare as it's growing in the fields every single year. So it's, so it's kind of a now carbon uh, uh, plant, really. And so on the carbon front, it's great. But we can then turn that now with this sort of manufacturing facility into a range of different materials. And so I think the, certainly in the UK, we haven't had that sort of facility available. In Europe, for the last 20 years, they've been making um, products from, from industrial hemp. Uh, and so we're, we're really playing catch up in the UK. And uh, so it's great to be finally getting this established. Um, if you go back uh, into uh, 1600s, 1700s, industrial hemp was commonplace in the UK. It was, it was um, mandated for, for farmers to be growing a quarter of an acre of industrial hemp on their, on their farms because it was so useful for the Navy and for the ropes and rigging that were needed at that time in, in history. And then we've kind of had a 100-year blip since the 1920s. Um, it's been then legislated as if it was alongside other forms of cab- cannabis and turned into a, a drug legislation. It's, it's still legislated by the Home Office in this country, but yeah. it's coming back. It's coming back and, and there's a lot of interest in its future. Yeah, I remember, I mean, Jeff, you've been close to this, but I remember when we started the magazine a long time ago, people talking about it, talking about it back then. But still, it, its rise appears to have been stifled by, by the perpetual war on drugs and prohibition. I think natural yeah. fiber insulations generally have had a tough time of it, though. You know, it's hemp isn't alone in that regard. Uh, quite yeah. right. How comes yeah. that's the case? I mean, is that doesn't it all burn as soon as you put sort of flame to it? Isn't that the sort of the pre-conceived idea is that you need some good synthetic materials to stop it from burning down? Whereas well, all chemical based products, don't want to touch that stuff, right? Let, let's put an oil-based product in to stop things from burning down. Yeah, exactly. No, it's exactly. It's, it's, it's it's complicated. I'd heard it said before um, about hemp that it can be grown on set-aside land, yeah. uh, which is a really important thing from a kind of crop rotation perspective in terms of, um, of I don't know if it's a concept many of our listeners will be fam- familiar with, but it's the idea of not growing your crop on the land for a period of time to allow the soil to recover. Uh, is that the case still with, with hemp? Exactly right. Hemp's best used as a as a break crop or a ro- you know as a as a cover crop in a rotation. So it actually it helps those those soils recover um, and, and it you, helps to reattract them. Are you trying to utilize hemp grown on set aside land? On in other words, land that would otherwise be unproductive, and uh, and as a consequence of of growing the hemp, does it make the land more productive afterwards? Uh, it's a good question. We're we're not using that yet, um, just because 
people aren't doing that yet in the UK. And because we're part of, well, quality control is all important in our final materials. So we are sourcing from specific farms at the minute who have been farming him really, really well on their, uh, in their rotation uh, as part of helping make sure we've got good food coming from those farms as well. So in the future, we might be able to. Um, certainly the processing facilities are starting to get there in the UK to be able to take that kind of thing in. But right now, not from not from that sort of, that sort of location. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, in the farmers that we're engaging with. Th- those guys have made sure they can process the hemp from from the fields and, and they're making good use of that in their, in their farms. But there's a whole load of research right now where, again, even farms are trying to relearn what machinery do we need to cut this stuff? What soils does it grow really well in? Which which varietals are we are we growing? You know, so there's a whole load of learning going on in the farming communities as well. There's a lot of interest. Uh, we just need to make sure that it all stacks up from end to end. That you know that it, that it all works um, economically as well as as well as in terms of biodiversity and soil and food production and the lot. I just wanted to come back quickly for sorry to that, that original question, but it's really interesting to find out or to understand from your perspective why have the natural fibers have a, a bad reputation. I don't know if it's a bad reputation. It's uh, it's certainly a um, they, they are in this country in in the UK uh, more more niche partly because of the price point um, more than anything. Um, it's it's hard to compete with in inverted commas conventional or, or the dominant types of insulations right now. Petrochemical foams with their thermal performance, the 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 rock walls and the mineral walls with their A1 fire ratings, and the scale that those um, production facilities are at now after decades and decades of development and, and dominating the market. So for natural fibers with the with the raw material inputs that we've got, you know, the cost base is slightly higher. As we get in the manufacturing facilities set up and scaling those, then producing more at volume and making sure we've got more competitive pricing will be a, a key to to enabling the growth of the natural fibers uh, market. But in, in, in Europe, um, between five and ten percent of of buildings have got bio-based insulation. For example, in in the UK, it's probably less than one percent of insulation in the UK has been been sold in terms of bio-based or, or natural fibres market. So we we are a long way behind, and there are others that are doing it bigger and better. So, but that, what that means is there's a good opportunity to to grow it in the UK, make make sure there's more awareness of it and that it's more affordable. But and in terms of the the strengths of natural fibres for climate crisis and for healthier buildings and all sorts of range of reasons. Procurement frameworks engaging with the benefits of those uh, those materials really yeah. need to start taking account of what materials are needed in in buildings for the future that could be more helpful. And not to, and not to mention that we're not comparing apples with apples here either. So you might be getting cheaper cheaper products, but and with better fire rating, but the impact of those is not very good. So we're not exactly it's not a winning solution, I'd say. Well, it's, it's different. Yeah, exactly. It's different materials for different purposes, isn't it? If you've got, if you need to build thinner walls, um, you know, and you need a massive, massively high performing thermal performance, um, then, then you may be restricting yourself to, you've designed a petrochemical based building. <laughs> and that's, that's the design. If you design your walls to incorporate breathable natural fiber material with, a, with the same sort of thermal performance as a rock wall or, or, or a glass wall, then great, you, you've suddenly got a building that can lower its embodied carbon uh, that, that's locked into the fabric of the building uh, and maintain a really good performance. And on fire rating as well, if people engage with, with what fire ratings really mean, there's a, there's a great topic there to talk about that um, in terms of the building regulations, certain applications absolutely need an A1 fire rating. And so if you're putting it, this sort of insulation into high-rise structures, you need, you need an A1 rating in, in those external walls, for example, or in separating party walls or in separating floors above a non-domestic facility, that's exactly the spot we need to be using A1 fire-rated material. But but there's a hell of a lot of building structures that don't require A1 rating. It's just that it's a perception. And actually, so all natural fibers have got a Euroclass E fire rating, which means that they basically smolder very, very slowly. Uh, but as part of a system, they'll absolutely meet building regulations behind a um, board and all that kind of thing. So when people come to site here, we take them to the quality labs and we show them the fire tests that we do on every single batch. Uh, you know, every single batch gets a test. Um, we do a surface test, we do an edge test, and they see the, the natural fibers just just smolder briefly, um, really, really slowly. And um, it, it, it fills them with confidence that actually, oh, wow, that's a 
very healthy material with the best in class smoke rating. It doesn't create a whole volume of massive volume of smoke, and it's not got the toxic toxins in it if it's burning. And also, there's no flaming droplets from this sort of stuff. It it it's hot, hangs together really, really well. So, how something burns, I swear we should do a, get one of the fire engineers in because they one of them came bouncing up to us at uh, one of the trade shows. And, and was delighted to see natural fibers there for that very reason about how they burn. Um, and uh, we said, we started on the narrative saying we could, we could add a bit more fire retardant. We could try and get that up to a higher rating. And the response was, please don't. <laughs> it's good enough just as it is. So I think there's a, there's a big education piece about, again, about the materials we use and, um, and, and getting the right stuff into buildings that's healthier for the, for the buildings. Um, I was going to say, Sam, and you've kind of hinted at it with one one word that you used in your response there. Um, what would you say to someone who has no interest in the environment, uh, who's openly hostile to the environment? Why would they specify a product from Indian Nature? That's a really good question. So it starts with what kind of building have you got? If you've got a, any, sort, any sort of historic property or an older building, those buildings were built to breathe, for example. So a natural fiber, one of the biggest qualities about it is it's a breathable material. So it, it helps with the moisture transfer out, out of your building, it helps wick the, the, the moisture away and out, out of your building, which preserves your your building structures. Um, so in terms of the tim frames and lots of stuff, you don't get condensation on them, etc. allows them to breathe. And that, if you're, if you're just interested in making your building stand up for longer, that's the sort of material you need that's going to preserve your building life and help your pockets. You haven't got as many, um, don't have to take that material out and refurb it again or or redo your your roof joints because they've gone all moldy and what have you, or that kind of thing. So, preserving the life of buildings, helping helping protect your pocket for the long term, pay that little bit more up the front, put that sort of material in, and you've protected your investment. So, nothing to do with climate change. You've got healthier material there, and if you're at all interested in your indoor air quality and the, and the air that you're breathing, um, that new that new building smell and new car smell is not actually really what you want going in your lungs. That's the VOCs. That's your volatile organic chemicals in the air. So. Again, this sort of material helps with your indoor air quality and, and keeps your, your health uh, in good shape. So similarly, with a lot of the problems we're seeing in, in, in buildings with mold coming now as, and all the, you know, in, in different places that haven't been built brilliantly, you've got a lot of cold spots in those buildings. You've got a lot of damp issues and moisture not able to escape. And so people are living in terrible conditions and we're seeing people dying because of that. Somebody said a great quote at one of the trade shows. They said, um, your, your building manager and your architect um, I've got more to do with your health than your GP does, or more impact on it, and so, and that's so true. It, you know, you, you put the right materials in the right spot in your building, and you've got a healthy building keeping you healthy as well. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's one of those perceptions that people think, oh, I'll save a bit. I'm going to, you know, that's it's twice the price to put your stuff in. You know, I'll, I'll save some money. And what you've done is you've put a material in that's you know not necessarily as, as healthy for the building or, or for yourself. I think in the context of the the mold issue. The social landlords uh, in 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 the UK, in light of um, of the, the uh, people's eyes being open open to the to the liability that they face from a mold perspective, um, that could be an interesting potential market. For have you have you have you talked to any land any landlords? Have you you know uh, about the product yet? Is that is that uh, is there any uh, anything coming through to you as a consequence of 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 that? Yeah, I mean, so both in um, private rented sector and in, in social housing as well, people are really interested in the qualities of this kind of material. And it's just about making sure that it's that it's affordable for the retrofit projects that are coming up that they're, that they're looking at. They tune into the, the, the qualities of the material to make sure they've got healthy space. Uh, so yes, we have had a lot of interest in that. Our job at the minute is having established the manufacturing just over a year ago, uh, we, we switched on the equipment. And so that first year of actually producing material has all been about getting it into the right state, the right shape, the right sizes, the right performance levels, and crucially with the right certificates that mean that those landlords, uh, the developers and, and retrofit agencies can actually use the materials and hit building regs, make sure they've got trust mark approval, et cetera, so that the whole thing works. So yeah, loads of interest, and we just need to make sure we're, we're able to serve them at the scale that their, their interest is, is starting to suggest is out there. So there's an argument about this product being about robustness. Uh, I mean, when you mentioned timber frame too, and you uh, you alluded to this in the context of the roof as well, but um, it's important to say to people that you know, I mean, f find me a building uh, in the UK uh, in terms of a 
any kind of a pitched roof building, whatever, that doesn't have a timber frame roof structure. Uh, so in other words, it's not just that this is something that would be advisable for, for buildings with timber frame superstructure, you know, walls and stuff, but as a, a product, a kind of a problem solving product, um, even, uh, in, 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 for, for any, any kind of roof structure. Well, that's, that is the trick. But again, over this last year, we've been making sure we've got an increasingly good sort of product to application fit. Uh, we, we launched with a flexi bat, which mean, which, you know, very bendy, but they're, they're also very flexible in their uses. So you can use them in the roofs and the lofts and the underfloor spaces. Um, you can put them on solid wall retrofit situations in between timber frame. They're nowhere happier than in between two bits of timber, but also a metal frame as well. All that kind of thing, garden sheds, the lot. So flex bulb bats are great. But we are, we've been innovating and getting the products right so they can go into the different, different parts of the building envelope really, really well. So a few innovations coming down the track with, um, with rolls, for example, uh, that's new, a new product coming through at, a, at the right kind of density that can, that can work in the loft spaces a lot more easily. We've got higher thermal performance coming on second generation products, um, as well, which means that they're more viable for use in that pitched roof kind of situation or in a room and roof, uh, or in dormer windows. We've got one more bit of kit to add in it. So in about a year's time, we'll have higher density boards, which could be then be used as uh, uh, internal uh, render boards and uh, reveal boards, that kind of thing as well. So we've really got a whole a whole raft of stuff coming down the track. But the, but this this first first product has been a, a good start to allow people to start to use it in, in a few different applications. Um, but it takes a minute to develop this stuff. It takes a while. I think the bit that's not been addressed here. So to your question, Jeff, like the the archetypal archetypal environment hating Cyril Snare figure. Health and safety is an issue for those guys because this stuff is fast to install. Like speaking of someone who's been on the other side, the deconstruction side, like pulling buildings down, dealing with fiber insulation, it's really fucking horrible. Like I realized like our attic gear. It's, I mean, we moved in here a year ago and I've still not been up into the attic since we first got here because like, thankfully they put in really thick insulation, but it's all fiber. Like I've got some form of trauma, like aversion from having been lifting it out of roofs of buildings. Like I once filled a whole, a whole conservatory, like a substantially sized conservatory with fiberglass insulation from this massive house in Cheshire. And Man, just seeing your skin glisten, like remembering that, like, oh man, Jesus, I've not been up that ladder in all that time because of it. And like, so when we first spoke, Sam, I remember you telling me you've been doing training with it. Was it, it might have been the River Clyde folks, like training them up in how to use it. And like a revelation that, right, you might be as well wearing gloves, but you don't have to. Like, you don't have to wear a breathing apparatus, all that stuff. Like, that's such a, makes such a big difference to the experience of, installing it not just living in it how much are those concerns built into the the product design or is that just a, a helpful byproduct oh no that's 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 a huge part of it the health of installers is, is part of it as well and and um the the guys from river clyde at home fix scotland were, were fantastic they came down for cpd on on site and, and got stuck in that's one of the biggest things that we get at trade shows as well is is we just have a stack of bats sitting there and people come up and the first thing they do is they come and they stroke it. <laughs> and some of them do a face plant into it going, oh, wow. And you'd never do that with, with the, you know, with, <laughs> with the other stuff. And so it's, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really important. When, once people get their hands on it as well, they go, oh yeah, oh, that's lovely. It, it's really nice. Uh, great to work with. And, you know, lofts are dusty places, so you might want a dust mask on or something like that. Anyway, but as you say, you, you, gloves and so on are optional. It's it's not it's 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 not harsh by any means. It's really soft and and, and really nice to handle and, and to install. It, it friction fits beautifully as well in, into into a loft, and so it's it's just it, it's really nice to work with. It's uh, it, as the rolls come out as well. I think that that will give people that confidence. A lot of people are used to say in a loft place just. Oh, it's, it's a roll, isn't it? And you unpack the roll and it, you just roll it out. When you look at it, a bat is more of like a, it's a slab. Um, and so it's more like a Jenga puzzle, putting it in there, um, which is just a slightly different way of doing it. So, but, and, and handling it is slightly different than people might be used to, uh, with the rolls. So it is important that we've got some, a, a product that meets their expectations of, of standard stuff as well. But even that's, again, that's super lovely to work with, but. The health of the installers is really, really key. As you say, the number of building materials in the past that have caused health issues for people, things like asbestos and all that kind of stuff is just terrible. So 
for us, one of the motivations was healthy people living in these healthier buildings and that the builders and the people making the buildings um, are healthy as well. So it's, uh, it was absolutely there from the, from the start. And it's in, actually something, Sam, that we've been um, talking about for a long time in the magazine. Kate uh, Dusselencourt, one of the, the reporters that we work with, used to be, she used to write for um, medical, I don't know if journals exactly, but, ma- uh, you know, magazines are kind of trying to, little like what we do with construction, we're not, we have no d- delusions with Passivist Plus to be a, a, a peer-reviewed journal. Um, we're trying to bridge the gap between um, what that kind of research is, is is telling to the people who actually have the patience and the ability to process it and uh, and make it meaningful to regular people, you know. Um, um, I had heard years ago from a fella I know uh, that painters and decorators have something like 10, 15 year uh, shorter lifespans uh, than the average. Now, I don't know if there's any truth in that at all or not. And of course, those industries have cleaned up their act an awful lot in terms of VOCs and so on over the last, because of regulation over the last decade or decade or two. But I would love to see, we were, we were looking at doing some research into the health and safety, occupational health and safety statistics to see if we could find differences but by trade and see if there's any any reporting available on on this um i don't know if it's something you've you've thought about delving into it's probably not your job it's more the job of a journalist really so i should just um be asking that question of my you should be asking that question of me rather than me of you (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) we'll get we'll get my my co-founder scott on next time he's he did a load of work on that um uh as well so uh yeah, there's a few things. We'll have a bit more of a conversation on that next time. We'll do some research. Absolutely. Yeah. I would like to, if I'm not jumping around too much, um, I'd like to z- zone in on the embodied carbon issue a little bit too, if possible. Yeah. I, uh, have you gone, because you because it's something that you talk about a lot, uh, what have you done to try to quantify the embodied carbon of the product? Have you have, have you gone down the route? Or are you looking down the, going, going down the route of an environmental product declaration or anything like that? Yes, absolutely. And um, I think carbon, the whole world is becoming increasingly carbon literate, thankfully, over the last few years, and it's speeding up and it really needs to. But for us, in so in 2019, we had a desk-based uh, life cycle analysis done in advance of what, what would it look like, this, this product, in terms of its carbon uh, impact. So that was really great. And it, and it really modeled everything. The, the, it was an independent study. They measured everything from the diesel going into the, the tractors on the farm to the distance from the farm to us and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but even then, we were, you know, we knew roughly we'd, we were aiming to put this facility in the borders, you know, exactly where, but, but, you know, to within 20 miles, we could, we could have pinned that down. So, um, so that, that was great. And that was in 2019. And then for us as a startup, you know, we've only had these machines switched on for, for 12 months now. And during that time, that's been fairly low rate production, lots of R&D, so lots of different energy readings coming off the machine. So to do a really efficient EPD, you need 12 months of production data to do a really, really good one. And so a lot of the more established facilities that have been making for several years, they've got their EPDs squared away quite nicely. So we're playing catch up in, in that regard. Um, so at the minute, we're still leaning on the, the carbon data from the desk-based study before we set up. But we have been active. We've been collecting all the data, monitoring all the machines, monitoring all the energy inputs. Scope one, two, and three emissions are being tracked on site. So we really are trying to be bang on with monitoring it. And we are engaging right now with the external uh, independent review um, to get our life cycle analysis updated and with an EPDs, EPD to follow that on the first product and then for every product following that because they are crucial to, to the whole industry, really, and that we can all communicate more effectively about not just cradle to gate analysis, but full life cycle and and um, and what happens at the end of life, like you were talking about earlier. Um, understanding when if stuff gets ripped out, what happens to it then, and and how do you make sure everything's joined up? We we genuinely wanted wanted to start up a circular economy business and a bio circular economy business. And uh, but again, we're we're learning the lessons um, like everybody else. Fantastic. Yeah. But if you need if you need to say hello or have a you mentioned that you might need to have a quick word with someone. So if you need to. Two seconds. No Two seconds. Thank you. It's the end of a busy week, Jeff. <laughs> we're, we're, we're interrupting crucial. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was our, our production manager, Graham, just heading off. <laughs> oh, man, no problem. A really silly question. Cradle to cradle is not a thing, is it? Or is it? Yeah, it is. Okay. 
Right. John McKibben, yeah. Because yeah. I was just used to Cradle to Grave. So when I was reading on your website, I was like, maybe that's... Yeah, I think I met uh, at my uncle's funeral last year. I met uh, a demolition contractor who did a master's on sustainability and demolition. And I think his whole... The whole thesis of his master's was cradle to cradle strategies for demolition. I was trying to get him on, but uh, he sort of dropped out of the, the conversation and I got busy and stuff. But it is, it's a really interesting concept. I mean, that's what Jeff was talking about with his his grave robbing in his uh, barnstorming presentation to the ACB conference last year. Yeah, and I should say it was uh, cradle to cradle's Bill McDonough, not Bill McKibben. They're, they're two kind of giants of the, of the sustainability movement and I confuse them. Um, so I don't know if that goes in or not, but uh, apologies. But and yeah, we, we can um, include your pedantic clarification. That's fine, Jeff. Don't worry about yeah. it. Okay. Well, it's just as you you know, some somebody out there will will be uh, will will think less of me. You know, and I couldn't I couldn't tolerate that. Um, <laughs> where it's, yeah, it's small. It's like a question of a small uh, number of uber nerdy sustainability heads will think less of me versus everybody thinking less of me because of the nitpicking. Yeah. So it's yeah. whatever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you want me to talk about the the the, the four stages and how I kind of uh, con- conceptualize that? Um, Dan, or I mean, no, I was just making reference to it. We don't, we don't really have to. It, yeah, it's just how you how no, you get on, Marty dance, Feldman's dance face. Us, into, how you, yeah. the, the point is how do, how do you how do you find a way to get Marty Feldman's face into uh, into a, into a presentation? You know, do you, do you know who I mean, Marty Marty Feldman? Sam, he played um, Igor among other things, and famously kind of goggle-eyed. He played Igor in Young Frankenstein. The Mel Brooks comedy, and um, as you'll know, with life cycle assessment of of of, I, I hadn't, I hadn't been that. <laughs> okay, so um, with life cycle assessment, you have the three, you have the four modules: A, B, C, and D. And um, I tried to put this in simpler terms to to make it meaningful again to to a bunch of folk who you'd expect should know because the AECB. Their, their members are as knowledgeable in terms of green building as, as anyone in the industry you'll find in the UK, really. Um, but so A, which is the upfront stage, I, I, I conceptualize this all in the context of the uh, or in the, uh, of the lifespan of a of a person. So A is conception and gestation. So a, a little image of of a you know a pregnant woman. Uh, then B was just you know from from crawl the baby crawling through to through to going to you know getting its degree because of course your kids have to go to university you know trades are are, are not worth a damn um through to uh through to aging and um and uh the zimmer frame and so on and then c was the grave and then d was marty feldman's face grave robbing you know um so it's 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 that kind of thing it's just makes hopefully makes it a bit more memorable sorry stuff to interrupt i just wanted to draw people's attention to the fact that there is a version of this presentation from the acb conference that's available on youtube there's a, a link in the show notes and in terms of shamelessly plugging what we do, we have been over the last 18 months or so running workshop style versions of this presentation with corporate clients and businesses to help people. This is what we mean by helping them to address their sustainability or decarbonization strategy, or just make sense of how to incorporate carbon into the way they, they think and go about that work. So if you need any support, just getting your heads around the subject or proselytizing the message within an organization, we can help. Just give us a shout and we're happy just to have a chat. It doesn't have to lead to some work or anything. We're in it for calls as well. All right, I'll get back in. How do you go about planning for the end of life stuff? Because you know the product, I mean, you know it's going to degrade once it's out of use. You don't take your product to Dignitas, no? No. And you can't, I mean, can you recycle it? Like, does that work? Can it go through deconstruction? Yeah, that's that's the that's the hardest bit in some ways is is forecasting for that. So at the minute, all, all of our products leave our gate with a cradle to gate uh, life cycle number on it. There you go, off off it goes, uh, and then it's traveling whatever distance it's traveling to the to the location. It gets locked away for the life course of that building. So if that's in twenty five years time, for example, or in thirty years time, that product is coming back out again. We've designed it to be first off reprocessable, so you can shred it back up. And reprocess natural fibers, put them straight back in the beginning of the line, and and produce fresh product from them. So you can you can basically upcycle that 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 product uh, by reprocessing. So depending on the ingredients you put into it, uh, because they are, for example, industrial hemp based. We, we start talking about it like whiskey. It's like a 90 percent blend of industrial hemp, but you have got some binder in there. And um, right now we're using a, a, a normal PES binder, which is which is petrochemical, which is plastic. So that's not 100 percent 
compostable. You can just compost that. You can get your like like you know the coffee cups and so on. Some uh, uh, hot compostable in a, in a council hot compost. We could put that sort of binder in as well, but it's way too expensive at the minute. Wouldn't be viable to do that. And also, you need to be able to communicate that end of life practice, which is the really hard bit, to people in thirty years' time to know where to take that material and, and what to do with it. So, at a very worst case at the minute, this material is durable enough to be healthy in the building for that life course. If you're taking it down in 25, 30, 50 years, 100 years, there are, there are buildings standing now with hemp in them from 100 years ago that's still there. So that is the hardest bit of being able to communicate to people in the future about what to do with this material. So if it does end up in any form of anfill, at least it's inert and at least it's not. For example, if a, a petrochemical foam goes up on fire, for example, which is what they do in some of these landfill sites, you've got you've got a massive amount of fossil fuels being released from those into the atmosphere. For us, it, this is biogenic carbon that's been sequestered and locked up for the life course of that building. And if it's released again at the end of the life course, then it's it's part of that biogenic swing of, of carbon release. So yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky one being able to communicate in the future. And is it a QR code we'll be reading at that point? Or is it barcodes? Or uh, well, you know, yeah. do we need... This is yeah. the perennial building passport, isn't it? But it's a funny point here, actually. Uh, the way you described it there is much more in line with the way embodied carbon is is thought of in the context of, say, the the the, the Rick's uh, whole life carbon methodology or the or levels the European one as well. Uh, which is that while you may have stored CO two in uh, a product from when the crop, uh, you know, the, the the product comes from was growing. At the end of life, it's regarded as being released into the atmosphere. Now, that must be very frustrating. Uh, I'm guessing from your from your perspective, you know, to have those kinds of restrictions. You know, um, to, to uh, it's almost as if when you follow the rules strictly, it's almost as if that sequestered carbon benefit doesn't exist. How do you feel about that? Oh, I'm pretty excited about it, to be honest. <laughs> it's not that frustrating. Um, I think this, it's genuinely exciting that we're all able to even talk about that and understand that better. And then we might have a standard chance on this planet if we actually understand how to manage our carbon. So for me, that's really exciting, being able to talk about that transparently about, right, that's how this product works. We're not trying to greenwash anybody or tell them that it's, you know, that it's completely, you've, you've, you've sorted your carbon out forever. We're not ripping the carbon out of the atmosphere and dumping it under the North Sea somewhere. And that's all perfect. <laughs> that's not what we're saying. We're saying let's accurately understand these materials and what we're doing with them and, and how good can they be so it's uh so I, I think people come and they often you know talk about carbon trading or all these concepts that are being tested right now and and, and thought about but for me the the thing that we're engaged with is supply chain carbon we're accurately accounting from it and actually there are, there are trials in the fields right now uh, four-year trials in the uk to understand exactly how much carbon is sequestered not just in the plant but into the soils then of that plant, we take whatever it is, like 25, 28% of the plant, and we turn it into these materials. The rest of that plant's been turned into something else and is going somewhere else for some other purpose. So we, we need to accurately communicate that to everybody that's then up the supply chain from us and is then understanding how that's impacting on their, their builds and, and so on. So I think it's, um, it's only frustrating if you've promised the earth to somebody and they're trying to buy it for something else. And, uh, for us, I think if we've got a and in terms of circularity, like infrastructure is developing to facilitate that sort of networks that can make the most of reusing the materials. Like it's it's well difficult now. Like you knock the product out, it goes into buildings, and people may remember or may forget that there is a way that this product could be deconstructed and reused without the need for generating more. Like virgin embodied carbon, if you like. Like we, Alex and I, we did a workshop yesterday with a, a cohort of startups who are involved in sustainability in the built environment. So it was about I don't know, ten people. One of them was this interesting group called Supply Change. Now their their mission is to develop a platform to connect businesses with social and environmental suppliers. And initially, that's about consumption. Like, because it's got to be, because that's the only way you're going to get money out of people to pay for it. But the more we get into these channels of circularity and the more we get to grips with thinking about concepts like cradle to cradle, like Alex's question, like, is that even a thing? It 
it feels unnatural because as a turn of phrase, it's so completely alien. I mean, how much recycling actually gets done nowadays of anything? It's something daft like less than 10% or less than 20%. Uh, construction waste is actually quite high. Um, oh, no, no, I mean just generally about yeah. uh, consumption overall. Like it's absurdly small. Well, yeah, you also need to not get too uh, – pe- people tend to think of recycling as uh, it was recycled, therefore everything is okay again, rather than thinking about you know, how that process works, how much energy is involved in the recycling process, yeah. um, how much of the resources can actually be recovered you know um and what happens to the stuff that can't be and so on it's 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 more complicated as as ever for these things well, you know that's where you're thinking about recycling as a response to a world of overconsumption but where you're thinking more holistically and we don't mean that in terms of chanting and candles it's like thinking about the the whole of the the equation because like hitherto we've outsourced the cost of carbon fuck it we don't care the global south can pay that bill we don't have to now it feels ever more like someone's going to get charged for it. There is going to be a tab in Europe, like hearing Scott McCauley's lecture at Retrofit Reimagined in London, talking about the carbon budget of uh, the Northern Hemisphere or Western Europe, and the fact that we're on course to have spunked ours by 2030. Easy, like perhaps 2025. He might have said, "I might be making that up." Though, so apologies if I've just. If I have manufactured a, a statistic, but I don't really care at this no, point. No, you don't care. This is the difference no. between you and me. You actually don't care about facts <laughs> and truth. You know. Yeah, and Scott McCauley also said that I'm really handsome and very charismatic as well. <laughs> and he said, "Oh God, Dan, you're a very eloquent speaker. I wish my facts were, in fact, what you'd said." It's like, weird to hear a northerner with that many uh, syllables coming out of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean. Like building these these ideas of circularity into having them baked into a product from the start, ready to harness the infrastructure supply chains. And supply chains not just being about shifting product out, about enabling the recycling. But we're working with an insulation manufacturer at the moment who, uh, at the moment, part of their carbon repositioning, as it were, is trying to work out how they can deliver their product, adapt it, and deliver it in a way where as soon as the demolition industry is ready for deconstruction rather than pure demolition, their product can be take extracted, whole or reused, and they're doing similar things to you, like building up a, a, a capacity within their own uh, manufacturing facility to incorporate more and more recycled, well, what would be waste products? So they don't have to bother with the virgin stuff. And they're really high embodied carbon to begin with. They're lovely people and they're doing great work. But... Well, really high, not really high embodied carbon, fairness, but we're not saying who they are, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, they're, sorry, they're, they're high embodied carbon to begin with. Compared, to, compared to some products, compared to, bear in mind, you know, we're talking, it, 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 it depends on how you contextualize this. When you're looking at, you're comparing it against the likes of hemp, it's a different league to, to most conventional products you know in terms of if it's embodied carbon what do you mean it's comparable or it's no it's not com- it's not really comparable yeah because it's 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 you know I, i'm presuming with your product that there's not in fairness I, I shouldn't make these assumptions because some natural fiber insulations can actually have a fair whack of embodied carbon up front um because depending on how much processing is required of them of the raw material sam you, you yeah we've been shiting on you please take over Oh, no, it's lovely to listen to you both. <laughs> it's great. Um, <laughs> the, uh, no, you're right. I mean, that, that's the thing. Everything's Everything's got, got a carbon cost, and um, we just need to track it better. Some of the natural fibers, uh, and for example, sheep wool, you know, sheep, sheep wool's got higher embodied carbon than, than the crops. The crops have got that better biogenic uptake uh, and so on. Uh, that said, compared to the sort of glass wool, rock pools, that sort of thing. The, the blast furnaces they're using to, me- to melt that, there's a lot of energy going into those compared to the low melt technology. The oven that we've got is no, no hotter than the oven in your home. <laughs> you know, it's that, about 130 degrees we go at. So it's it's much, much smaller um, overall, which is great. That's so amazing. I mean, you're getting into the kind of range there where you could be using industrial heat pumps potentially to, to generate the heat, uh, interestingly, I think. Um, yes, yeah, so in, in our kind of plan, just get, just getting started has been getting the first uh, equipment in place. And uh, I think our, our our board is, you know, we 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 they've always been asked, right, what's the full plan? So you you look ahead 
and there's all sorts of stages of setup uh, and getting getting some sort of uh, renewable energy generation really that that for us drops the embodied carbon massively in terms of those energy inputs so but it's that's a few years away yet we need to make sure this product gets onto the market yeah. gets gets viable and, and don't try and do everything you've to, to, to run before you can walk you know yeah i mean i have to say what you've done looks very impressive one thing i wanted to ask actually because we we're talking about the, going back to this embodied carbon question and uh, well, i suppose a lot of this is about embodied carbon and dan mentioned uh, this term that john butler used last week of um uh of buffering uh you know considering the, the considering the time element of this dynamically what we're talking about is trying to buy time in lots of cases by using crops that uh, don't take like a hundred years to grow you know um to to, to sequester co2 what how, how how long could we be talking about with your products in terms of um you know from the start of the process in terms of the hemp uh being uh farmed to to the product actually being installed what kind of time period are we talking about in terms of when when the sequestration starts and when it ends so the farmers are, are planning their well they plan a long way in advance in farming but um basically they're they're drilling their the seeds into the ground in may time by august middle of august they are cutting it down they're harvesting it and it's in that time so you're talking about three months of growth it's grown up to 10 to 12 feet tall you can literally see it growing in the fields if, <laughs> in the month of july it's growing at a ridiculous rate, several inches. Do you like to stand month. and watch watch the hemp grow, do you? Well, you know, you might need your deck chair out at that point and, you know, <laughs> have it just uh, sit. But that's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. So we're talking a yeah. matter of a few months. A few months. And and so that's that process of from, from planting to cutting. So you then there's a there's a what's called a retting process where they basically leave the, there's a few different ways to do it, but they leave the, the cut crop in the fields for about six to eight weeks, something like that. To, which basically allows it to soften and allows the, the environment just to wet it and um, soften it a bit so that when they bale it and bring it in from the fields in, in sort of October time, it's much more easy to process it. Then November, December, January, you're, you're processing and, and refining that fiber. So all in, you're looking at six to eight months before it's that fiber could be used. So uh, for us, we, we, we've been working with some really great farmers in the UK who have kind of kept it alive, really. Um, Yorkshire's the hemp capital of the UK at the minute. Um, it's absolutely amazing and can't give enough credit to people like Nick Vose at East Yorkshire Hemp, um, who, who for 20 years has really been keeping that alive in the UK, learning the lessons. How do you do it here? And there's a lot more attention. There's a lot of other growers now testing it, trying it, realizing they haven't quite got the right kit, putting the right kit in place and so on. But so the farms, there's a, a big move now. And now that we're up and running in the borders, there's, there's uh, several borders farmers looking at putting in processing here. Um, but that, that's why it's kind of if, if uh, so many plane flights offset it by planting a tree, how many years is it going to take to, for that tree to grow to sequester as much carbon as you've just used on your flight? And what we're, we're talking about here is is carbon that's been sequestered within those few months and then and then locked away into a building for the life course of that building. That, yeah, and that's that buffering game, I suppose, that we're, we're able to lock it away for a period of time into the, into the fabric of, of the buildings. But how long that is? You know, like, like, like we say, there's, 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 um, historic buildings where you've had hemp in there for a hundred years. Uh, it's, uh, that's a good old buffer, I think. And uh, if we can get that sort of renewable carbon concept understood a bit better, um, that'll be, that'd be pretty good. But yeah, it's a cracking crop. And, and it's certainly in places like China, Vietnam, France, there's tens of thousands of, of, uh, hectares being grown every year of this stuff. But other crops as well are really, really good. There's um, several other crops that that could be sequestering carbon too. Have you got any plans to to expand to Europe at all? I mean, I know you've been putting heavily emphasis, heavy emphasis on your UK grown crop, so maybe that could cause a problem. But it'd be interesting to know what your plans are there. Yeah, so we we very much kicked off with you know we've, we've got a planet to cool. That's that's why we're here, and the planet hasn't got this kind of facility. So we we built it with replication in mind. We we really see it as the era of local crops into local processing and manufacturing into local homes um, or for other local use. So there's no point transporting this stuff around the world. It's like moving air, you know, so you need to regrow that local industry. So um, for us in Europe, they're way ahead. So that for us, we wouldn't, there's no real need to go into Europe, but they're doing all right. Um, I mean, we could do, uh, but uh, in many ways, we're learning from them and we're innovating here um, on our own stuff. Um, but we have had a lot of interest from, from other countries that are seeing what we've done, what we're doing. And so we, we've got several partnership conversations uh, on the go, 
we're, we're um, looking at different models of, of how do we replicate the Indian HML in other locations. We've built some great relationships with equipment suppliers and and the product mixes and there's a load of secret sauce we've been learning. So whether we license it out for speed or whether we build our own facilities in other locations has always been part of our, our thinking. Uh, but those decisions have, have yet to be taken until we until we can prove this out. It's one of those things that I don't know if you've ever read the book Blitzscaling, <laughs> but it's, it's a crack and read. One of the concepts there is you can go really fast and, and really build these things to, to, to capture market demand or in this case, tackle the climate crisis. But, but if you're going to put seven million pounds easy, and that's how much we've had to raise over seven years to get this up to this stage, then you need to know what you're doing if you're going to put that much money into building a facility um, and, and getting it running. So for us, there's just a little bit more to do proving out market entry right now. And then that scale could really, could really go. But um, fundamentally, we don't have time. Hey, we've got to get this moving. Absolutely right. In terms of challenges, have you actually had to um, go out there and and stimulate supply from from farmers as well? Have you have you had to try and get farmers on board to kind of to to engage with this? You know, and and is that a problem? Yeah, it's it's both a, both a problem and an opportunity. Definitely, it's um, so, so farmers take decisions a long way in advance, and they you know if you're going to plant a crop in, you need to know you're going to be able to sell that crop, and they need to know how to process it as well. So. If, any, you know, if anything, farming takes decisions a lot longer than the construction industry does. And it takes a long time in construction, a long time in manufacturing. So we've been working with a range of farmers across the UK the last five, six years. We've had, we've had interest from a lot of farmers uh, about growing hemp and supplying. And it's chicken and egg. And we're quite happy to be the chicken or the egg, one of the, whichever one it is. But, but we've got going. We've, we've put the facility in place. That gives them an anchor client that can actually grow the crop for the right specification. Uh, and so on. So uh, right now, uh, we put in a, a milestone agreement, five-year agreement with the guys in, in, in Yorkshire. Uh, that's, that, that secures as much uh, industrial hemp as we can get in the UK right now. We have other suppliers from, from Europe, but it, just even locally here in, in the Scottish borders, uh, I think we've engaged with about 20 different farms now. And, and there's currently people stepping forward to say, right, now that you're there, we want to try and establish this here so that's pretty exciting right now and for, again for people to put the money on the line to put the right processing equipment in place that's a long journey so we've, we're really fortunate in in the scottish ecosystem of support here south scotland enterprise wants to develop the region they've been great partners zero west scotland scottish national investment bank people like that are all saying how do we make this a better place it's yes it's about the climate but it's also about the people and the places that that we're in so um that's partly why we're here and I think it, it just takes time and confidence and trust building and um, everything's moving at the right pace right now. So it's, it's, uh, this is definitely part of a rural economy business that, that can really help support community here. Loads of indirect jobs around the, the facility. The Indian Nature Mill hopefully could have about 30 jobs rebuilt in a, in a region which, which had lost about a hundred jobs the year before we came. Those jobs and, and, um, industrial bands, bandsaw manufacturing had gone to Brazil. That industrial nature um, sort of concept for us was all about, if you Google that, actually, you'll find us, industrial nature, the brand name, but you'll also find lots of pictures of old industrial sites with, with nature overgrowing them, all these rusted buildings and you know, all that sort of thing. And, and that was kind of the concept that if we can land this in a, an area that's shifting industry, then this is about natural industrial revolution, linking those farms to industry for, for the climate and that zero challenge. So it's, it's a, yeah, but hopefully we're seeing that coming together. Something that's quite exciting about what you're doing is that what you are laying down is replicable elsewhere. Like where I'm from, it's a former cotton and pit town. And the sweet FA there now, like there's very little industry. You know, there's one factory. And I mean, it feels like it's dying on its arse. And the, the, the nearby land would be very suitable, I would presume, for growing if not hemp something similar presumably hemp because that's one of the things about it it grows most anywhere and you know it can be used once a thing like this becomes established as a viable proposition throughout construction man one would hope that you'll end up with loads of imitators but as a first mover or an early mover (laughs) you'll have your bit sewn up but what i like is as well like so we've spoken about it and about uh, I've spoken with other people that are doing similar things, and nearly everyone talks about 
these sorts of materials being deployed in strategies where ours isn't the only way to do it. There are many ways to resolve these problems. Ours is part of a palette of solutions that that should be applied all over. Because it's not going to be suitable for every building, presumably, like you oh, said. Absolutely. Uh, but, man, it can be an awful lot. It can work for so many folk. Yeah, um, I think also, it's, uh, just, very, just very quickly, I think from what I'm hearing here is it's also your purpose you know, you're not just talking about you know getting stuff from the fields and putting it into buildings to make it you know, ultra simple. You've got a reason to do this, and you've got an actual purpose. And I think that that's what differentiates what you're trying to do, and which will I believe will give it longevity as well. And I think that's really where you can differentiate yourself. And you're not trying to be the biggest. You're not trying to be the the fastest to market, but you're trying to be leader in many different ways. And that's what people are coming to to value far more. Ah, uh, nicely put. I hope so. This is all about making this sort of product available. And it's walking the journey of the steps that you have to do to to get this sort of thing in place. But fundamentally, this needs to exist <laughs> for for the next generation. And and it's it, we're all on generation. that mission, right? <laughs> all right. So one of the things we were going to talk about was certification and the anxious making and arduous process of achieving it. But I think we're quite late on in the day, and it's growing darker and darker where you are. Like uh, Sam has been kind enough to join us from his car since the factory shut down for the day. So I think we can let you uh, split and I will not, we'll keep the powder dry on that one because I'd I'd love to have a, a warts and all chat as much as one can to discuss how fucking horrible it was <laughs> and what you learned from the process because there'll, there'll be people out there listening with their own ideas who could benefit from, from the wisdom and experience yeah, that you've been through. Yeah, that's a good call, good trailer. It's been a tough journey, uh, but we've we've got some hopefully some pretty exciting news coming. So um, yeah, that's uh, there's a good story to tell there, and let's let's get my co-founder Scott on for that one because uh, oh man, he, yeah, uh, yeah, he's walked that journey for a long, long, long time. So yeah, it's a good good call. All right, big yeah. up. Um, any other questions before we wrap up, or is there anything you wanted to say that you haven't had a chance to yet, Sam? No, it's been great talking to you guys. Um, it's refreshing, actually. And uh, yeah, we're, we'd love to keep the conversation up. More people need to understand this sort of stuff. Um, thanks for giving us the opportunity to to communicate about it, really. And um, we've been we've been keeping our powder dry for quite a while while we get this facility set up. It's taken a long time to get here, and let's keep it. Let's keep keep talking. I think that's the thing, and you guys do it beautifully. So thanks for having us. Well, no, thank you for joining us. Like we had a little tour of the facility before virtually. And it does look, it's mad impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, let's do one of those as well. See if we can, see if we can do some sort of visual thing. Because, uh, yeah, you're very welcome to come to, to, come to the uh, Indian Nature Mill. And once once Duncan Smith and the guys at River Clyde have got something going on there, it'd be great to have a look at some of this material going into, yeah. into some homes. Eh? Yeah, Most definitely. Well, um, all right then. Um, thank you for joining us at home. What do I have to do now? So all the usual things, uh, join the AEC, join the AECB, join the IGBC. Um, who's the other one? ACAM, ACAM, that's it. Her own space for all the ladies out there. Please rate the show. Five stars, please. We are, we're not needy. The algorithm's needy. But we need the algorithm's support to get it out there. Only five stars will do. If you can't be asked, don't bother. It is fine as well. A written review would be really good. We got a new one the other day. It was really nice. Yeah, I'll share it with you after. And if you get something out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them. That's a big help in getting the word out. It's not just for us. It's for all the people like Sam who are doing some amazing work. Um, last thing, if you need any help with any of the, the strategy side of things, be that marketing strategy, sustainability strategy, incorporating sustainability or decarbonization into the way your business is working. We're helping a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of things. If you just want to chat, just get in touch, have a chat. Our details are in the show notes as well. Or Sam's details are in the show notes. If there's any literature you want us to include in there, Sam, we will do. That's it now, isn't it? I, can't, I haven't missed anything. All right, big up. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, Sam. Um, we'll say goodbye. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. Thanks a million. Yep. Thank you. Cool. All right, we are out.